welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. You may hear that she's just got an air conditioner, which is uh, going to be in the background of our <laughs> podcast as our guest star this week. Yes. Uh, so enjoy that. But it's very hot in New York, so it's got to join us. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing the new X-Men movie, X-Men Apocalypse, starring Oscar Isaac in his finest role as Apocalypse. We've been greatly looking forward to this film, which... I think we both enjoyed on precisely the same level, which is full-hearted acknowledgement that it's not good and much of the X-Men franchise is highly flawed, but still incredibly enjoyable. Yes. I think to start off, we should establish that we have a thesis that it is essentially impossible to make a bad X-Men movie. Yeah. Because, and I realize that this is going to sound incredibly hypocritical coming from me since... Very recently, I was like, Civil War is a bad film because it doesn't, you know, all the narrative standards don't work and I don't want all these extra characters and blah, 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 blah. But to me, X-Men is different (laughs) because it's garbage, but I think on some level they know that it's garbage. Obviously, I mean, I don't think the people making these films, like, want to make bad films or, like, don't take what they're doing seriously. But I do genuinely believe that they know that, like, they're making something stupid. And so they make stupid things that are also, like, fun and dumb. And they vary in quality. I think we agree that this film is probably the worst of this these last three sort of, like, trilogy of X-Men movies with the new cast. But I enjoyed it very much because it's an enjoyable, dumb movie for reasons we'll get into. My audience at the 34th Street AMC in New York City was a spectacular crowd, all of whom seemed to have the same attitude towards X-Men, which was, this is stupid. I was so jealous because I went to see it. I went to see it with friends, but I went to see it at like quite a small indie theater and we should have gone somewhere bigger because virtually all the way through, during many, many very poorly written or completely nonsensical scenes. I was dying with suppressed laughter. I was kind of digging my hands into my arm like, no, James McAvoy desperately trying to emote through some completely unspeakable piece of dialogue. And I would just be like, I need to just yell right now. But the rest of the audience would just be kind of quite subdued. My friend was sitting next to me also laughing a bit. It was just like, I need support here. (laughs) Yeah, there was There were a number of very serious moments, and I think I won't get into them right now, but I think we're basically just going to dismiss with spoilers. I mean, like, spoilers don't. Right. Like, you've all seen this movie, I assume, by now. If not, who cares? It definitely Um, doesn't matter. (laughs) But everyone laughed at the serious moments, and there were also sitting right behind us a group of young black men who loudly narrated the entire film. (laughs) Normally, this would bother me because I hate people talking in movies. But this is X-Men, so it didn't matter. And they literally, like, at full volume, just talked through the entire thing. (laughs) And they were not taking it seriously at all. Just kind of this, like, sarcastic commentary through the whole thing. And I was just like, this is amazing. (laughs) Like, they were not having any of it. I mean, not, like, in a derisive way, but they were just kind of like, when someone did something stupid, they were just like, "Mm." (laughs) mm-mm, no. There are a couple things in particular that I will point out as we get to them, but it was just absolutely hilarious. My friend and I were just, like, in stitches. So that combined with the audience laughing at, you know, deaths of people and other serious moments was um, was quite spectacular. This is what going to the movies in New York City is like. <laughs> it was beautiful. So, yeah, we're going to get into it. Again, we're just going to spoil everything. Yeah, this film does not have a good plot. 
It's basically your classic team of superheroes fights up against a really shit villain story. And I feel like there's a couple of things that you can get spoiled for, the greatest of which being that Magneto's family dies. But if you can't predict that within half a second of them appearing on screen, then you've never seen a film before. Well, what was so amazing about that was that they literally are there for two scenes. They're introduced, and then in the next scene, they are killed to make him sad. Which is and it's not necessary. Like, his family died in a concentration camp. They're like, we've got to have a really right. bland wife as well. Give right. him a bland wife. <laughs> also, I mean, I know that there are various things like this in the comics, but they go from him being this crazy activist murderer person to all of a sudden being like, and now he works in like a steel factory or something in Poland with his wife and daughter with like, his I mean, I know wife, his apparently right. human wife. Exactly. And I know 10 years have passed, but like, that's quite a shift in approach there. The thing is, I feel like Magneto is so internally inconsistent as a person. Yeah, <laughs> that this is completely acceptable. I mean, also in, in the comics, I think his wife is human. She's just like a very generic, feminine, but not makeup-y kind of woman who lives in their like log cabin in the woods in With, Poland. like weird clothing. Like it was the whole thing. But yeah, so then they find out that he is a mutant and then they like come for him because that's what's necessary for the plot. And then... Someone with, like, a very shoddy-looking bow and arrow shoots both of them very conveniently, even though that's not really physically possible. Oh, no, long bows are really powerful. But it it didn't look like a full-fledged... Yeah, we're not going to complain about that. So I'm sitting there, like, laughing but trying to keep it down, and you could sort of feel the audience. It was the same thing going on, but no one really wanted to, like, fully laugh at this because like they have just been shot so someone across the theater loudly goes good shot and the entire audience (laughs) burst out laughing like it was mass just like hysteria in the room and i was like this is amazing like this is beautiful this is why we have communal viewing experiences beautiful it was just just falls to his knees and yells at the sky which is a great staple of not only all films but definitely the x-men franchise where there's the the first really bad wolverine movie has six or seven different occasions where wolverine just falls to the ground does his claws up in the air and yells no Yeah, and then he murders all of them with, like, the necklace. The guys behind us were like, yeah! (laughs) It was awesome. And then he, he, like, just turns around. He's like, well, you know, instead of having a constructive ideology again where I try and kill all humans, he's like, I'm going to become the sidekick to this random guy who just showed up. Well, I think this is, like, the main problem. Well, there are (laughs) many problems with this movie. But in terms of the basic enjoyment perspective, right... And the friend I went with was like, there are two things I want from X-Men movies. One, a bunch of mutants doing weird shit. <laughs> like, two, Magneto having stupid plans, right? And because of the nature of Apocalypse as a villain, and, like, his deal, right, is that he's just all-powerful and, like, controls people or, like, seduces them into following his plan. Like, Magneto is a very passive character throughout the entire movie, and that's not fun. Like, I want Magneto to do crazy, stupid shit. That's what I want out of these films. And instead, he basically just goes along with what Apocalypse is telling him to do, which is boring, both because that's not interesting for his character and also because Apocalypse as a villain 
is dull. Yeah, it's really baffling to me why they decided to go with Apocalypse at all, because generally, yeah. like, the X-Men movies, they have a structure where there's two villains, one of whom is Magneto, and the other one is, is maybe compelling or is maybe not that interesting. You know, you've got Striker or the US government or whatever. And that works really well as a formula. But if you have someone like Apocalypse as the primary villain, it just doesn't work, because he doesn't have really a personality. His motivation is just that he wants to take over the world in, like, a really kind of generic, cartoonish, I want to kill everyone sense. For the first half of the film, I think you could kind of interpret it that he's almost mind-controlling his four followers, or the appeal of him is that he gives them a power boost. So I guess you could interpret that maybe they're, like, really addicted to having their superpowers boosted. But then once you find out that he wants to steal Xavier's you know, mind control powers so he can do this on a larger scale. It becomes like even more obvious that there's no motivation for the four people to be following him. So with Olivia Munn's character, Psylocke, you can just about just accept, okay, she's evil, so she's following the bad guy because she has no personality and barely any dialogue. So it's like, okay, she's evil, fine. With Archangel, like his life has been so fucked up that he will willingly follow Apocalypse because he's just like, I fucking hate humans. Life is terrible. But like Magneto and Storm, they do not give enough or need any explanation really for why they're willing to follow someone who's literally just a genocidal maniac because with magneto he'd just be like i can do this better myself why am i why am i like the pa to this madman and then storm obviously is also traditionally a good guy so you've already got like that extra stepping stone to her being a villain and they do this really great introduction like i really enjoyed storm's um introductory scenes i think the actress was great and stuff but once they get past the point where she's become apocalypse's follower it really feels like a lot of that was cut i mean we're going to talk about this later there was clearly a lot of stuff got cut out of this film but there was really no transition between her being discontent with the political situation as a mutant then becoming the follower of this genocidal maniac and then right at the end kind of being like oh no i realize i'm on the wrong side because i idolize mystique and mystique is on the other side and that's right. kind of her yeah. transition, which is like, you can see what's meant to be there, but they've not gone into it. And I think yeah, there's a lot of bad editing happening in this film. Yes, which we will discuss in a little bit. But in terms of like Apocalypse as a character, psychologically, he's a non-entity, right? Like he's just an all-powerful being from the past, which also doesn't make any sense because he's been buried in like 6000 BC or something. And then clearly he's in the same spot. But they're like, he's been everywhere throughout history. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Oh my god, I hadn't even considered that. I thought about it the entire time. And like, if the shtick is supposed to be that like he's woken up and gone back to sleep and woken up and gone back to sleep again, that's fine. But then there would be no reason for him to be in exactly the same spot with the same thing on top of him. Okay, so so, no, he's definitely, he's definitely asleep that whole time, 100%. So the only way I can legitimize that is that when we see him in ancient Egypt, that's not the first time. And it's happened a bunch of times before then. And then the myth of Apocalypse and the Four Horsemen carries on during the historical period for like 2,000 years when he's asleep. Right, but... But yeah, it doesn't make any it sense. It, no, it doesn't make sense. And But then also, like, they don't establish... Because he's just all-powerful, they don't establish any rules for his power because... It's really unclear what his power powerful. is. Until right. like, you kind of figure out, oh, it's the thing with the sand and stuff. But then he can also just, like, he can move people places, and then he also can protect himself, and he can take other people's powers. And, like, he can he can do basically anything the plot needs him to do. And so then, jumping forward to the end of the movie, when they finally defeat him, the sequence when Jean embraces her full powers, 
is so awesome. That was one of the sort of most viscerally satisfying moments in the film, but it also doesn't like make sense <laughs> because you haven't established like how he can be beaten and what that looks like and also like what her powers are there isn't any like build up to what's going to happen with him or any sort of real like how do we do this and what is you know really going on also the whole thing with like sending the nukes into space is why <laughs> like what's the point like I mean, really... he wants to destroy everything and not what like there's just so no I, what, what i find incredibly impressive about this film is that it's two hours and 20 minutes long at least half of the dialogue is extremely clumsy exposition but it's still really hard to follow. They haven't clearly characterized any of the new characters apart from Jean and Cyclops, who are both great. The villain, they don't even explain what his part. Like, there's just so much information required, even though there's a ton of really stupid info dumping all the way through. I don't understand how you can manage all of those things and have it be that long. And there weren't even really long action sequences, right? There were two action sequences, one of which was not action heavy, the thing where Wolverine shows up, which was, you know, really plotty. And then there's a thing at the end, which was kind of not very good CGI. But when you compare that to Civil War, which is very heavy on action, just like the last Captain America movie, how, what was happening during all the time in X-Men Apocalypse? Well, I actually found, I mean, comparing this after we went and saw the movie, and I was saying, like, I found this obviously much more enjoyable than that film and I think much more watchable um, and I think the difference for me was that I think like this obviously isn't a good film but I think the difference is that even when they're not making a good film that X-Men as a franchise is so much weirder yeah, than the Marvel fun. movies and they don't feel the need to make sense or be serious and that's actually a strength right so that like there there's just so much more like texture to the world that they'll just throw in this kind of like odd fun stuff that um the marvel movies don't really have so like one of the girls i was with compared the marvel movies to like tetris and she said and now that was sort of True, she was like, I like all those Tetris blocks, but it does sometimes feel like they're just kind of sh putting them into place together, right? And, the, like, this one, I think someone else said that, like, the Civil War, she's kind of, like, waiting for all the things to happen she knew were going to happen, and, like, she enjoyed the movie, but it was very kind of like, okay, we know X, Y, and Z are going to happen. And, like, this movie, like, who the fuck knew what was going to happen next, right? And then the stuff that they kind of do, like, the Quicksilver scenes, which are so much fun, is very X-Men-y, or, like, the weird mutant powers are very X-Men-y, but you don't necessarily know what they're going to be. And for me, like, as someone who likes these movies, I think that that is fun on a very visceral level in a way that the Marvel stuff is not. Um, and another thing, the X-Men films are just, like, comic books, right? Like, they just throw the comic book stuff up and, like, it's fun and stupid. Yeah, and, and you've got, like, 90 characters. Right, and the Marvel films are actually trying to be films, but they don't quite get there. There's different things that they take, you know, because the, the Marvel movies are extremely comic booky, but they're like a different kind of comic. Like the the X-Men movies are very good at like translating certain strengths of the X-Men comics. They're really good at the soap opera stuff. The earlier films, especially the first one with Rogue, is good at doing the teenager-y kind of stuff. 
um, other aspects they're not very good at at all. Like, I said, they're very stupid. <laughs> it's not, I'm not saying they're, like, great. I mean, like, do you know what I loved in this one? I loved the, um, the 1980s Berlin cavalry gladiator thing. <laughs> oh my god, like, what? When that started, I was just like, what? It's like the music video for Wild Boys by Duran Duran, but also this scene where... Xavier is being kidnapped and he's hanging around with the Apocalypse crew because it's so stupid, it's so X-Men-y and it's so 80s because the whole crew are just standing there on this mountaintop. They look like an album cover. They're just posing. Olivia Munn looks incredibly uncomfortable because she can't like move properly in her costume and it looks really stupid. A bunch of people have already joked about this, but most of what Apocalypse does when recruiting people is just give them a makeover, right? He just gives them a makeover. So you've got this, like, fetish band posing, and then you've got Duran Duran, Charles Xavier, lying on the ground, and he's wearing a lavender sweater and, like, a chunky chrome wristwatch, and he's got his hair with little highlights in it. I love this. It's so aesthetic. (laughs) One of the best moments in the movie, and my friend actually leaned over to me, and she was like, is he actually, like, doing this? Was then, like, Apocalypse is, like, angel and he's like holding his hand over his shoulder gently sculpting his armor and i was just like what is going on what is this just amazing but also like the design of apocalypse himself is such a crime because oscar <laughs> isaac oh right God. i know that oscar isaac is not only really good but also really charming and he also has a sense of humor in real life so he would definitely be able to do a really campy ridiculous intense version of apocalypse and it would be good but instead they've got him in this really bulky costume which was quote-unquote creaky which meant that they had to re-record all of his dialogue for the whole film and then do like a special effect so he's got a booming voice also about halfway through the film i started to notice that they're often like shooting him from below the chin to try and make him look tall because oscar isaac is like five foot seven and apocalypse has to look tall and impressive but he can't and also his bulky costume just makes him look really bulky and short if they shoot him aside. And that includes the shoes, because whenever you see his shoes, they're like enormous. They're like the size of Oscar Isaac's legs. <laughs> so, so it's just like the whole thing is a mess. <laughs> they should have just had him looking normal. The decision making was mystery is about. <laughs> but moving on to some of the other characters, they introduced a bunch of the teenagers in this one, which they had not done previously, so kind of I think, trying to shift shift to the new new generation a second time, having moved from the first first set of actors to uh, Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy, now trying to sort of move down the line to the kids, which was interesting because they cast a ton of people and, as we were saying, I think cut a lot of that time. But the two who did get a bunch of screen time were um, Gene and Scott, who were played by Sophie Turner and um, Ty Sheridan, who are both totally great um, and are both going to be, I think, pretty big movie stars. So they did a good job getting them early like they did with poor Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> and signing them, I'm sure, to like six movies. Poor Jennifer um, Lawrence. Oh, yes. not, not, not good for this franchise. Not good in the role. Not given a good role. And also forced to be painted blue and naked. Just like a trifecta of awfulness. Although they Let gave her, her clothes at the end. They gave her clothes at the end. Yeah. Did you notice? I was yeah. like, oh man, she did some negotiating. Although I thought she actually had more to do. This film definitely gave the most to Mystique of the previous. And also she had kind of an interesting concept just going on behind the background as this inspirational political figure. I mean, it still wasn't a great role for Mystique, and it's also just nonsense compared to the way she is in the comics. 
Yes. But compared to the last two films, this one actually had several characters who were women and did stuff, which is more than you could say <laughs> of the previous ones. Yes. Even though I would like to talk a bit about Maura McTaggart. Cause... Oh my god. So my reaction to Maura McTaggart in this film is just, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Because <laughs> the scene where they reintroduce Maura McTaggart and they have kind of Xavier just hitting on her ridiculously in her office. I was just like, this is hysterical, right? It's actually intentionally funny as well as unintentionally funny. James McAvoy is a really good comedy actor. It's a really funny scenario. And it's also terrible, right? Because he like mind wiped his girlfriend from 20 years ago because now they're all meant to be in their mid-50s, which is, we just have to ignore that because of course they're not in their mid-50s. But like, so he wiped her memory of their barely existent relationship. And then he comes back and he's like, well, you know, I've been kind of creeping on her for a while, but I'm generally a creep, so it's fine, which is hilarious Xavier characterization. And he's in this transition point where when he's at school, he's starting to act a bit more like the Patrick Stewart guy and he's all kind of fatherly and mature. And then in his private life, he's just like a hilarious douchebag again. Yes. But like Mara McTaggart's characterization, right, is nothingness, right? Because she's never had a personality that makes sense in the movies. In First Class, there's this absolutely atrocious scene where she, the CIA agent, is staking out this evil club and then she has to infiltrate it. So she takes off her clothes and underneath she's wearing like a perfect set of lingerie and like hold up stockings. No one is wearing that under their clothes, let alone like a 1962 CIA agent. And she wouldn't take off her clothes in front of her partner in like the notoriously sexist world of law enforcement in the 60s. But then like back now in the present day, they've brought her in, I guess, because they they need someone to do government-y kind of exposition and also they want to have someone for Xavier to be acting off. They want to have him to have a love interest. Um, there was no reason for her to be in the film, right? Because, oh, it's the CIA's famous ancient Egyptian demigod investigation department. Like, what? <laughs> of course. And the fact that she's in the CIA, I really enjoy that. Just in the general sense that Obviously, the CIA are super evil, and it's hilarious that movies keep introducing characters like this. Like, oh, it's just a relatable member of law enforcement. (laughs) But also, because Sharon Carter in Civil War is also in the CIA, so it's like this club of two actors who are really good. The actress who plays Maura McTaggart is fantastic in other stuff. She's really good in Spy. Um, And then they just get these shitty roles where they're just like kind of the girlfriend to a male character who has a far more compelling relationship with another man. And they just stand around giving exposition and being really dull and their emotional reactions don't make any sense. Because then when her memory is unwiped, she's like, oh, that's really emotional. It's like, no, he's a creep. What the fuck? I know. My friend was like, her reaction better be to like run away. (laughs) No. Also, it's hilarious about that scene at the end where he wipes her on me. Like, I really enjoyed the stuff where he was like creeping on her and she didn't know who he was. He's a creep. That was what was enjoyable about it and funny. And then at the end where he wakes up and he's like, where are you? And he's like on the beach in Cuba and then like gazes at her. I was like, excuse me, sir, your main association of that event is not that woman. That's just not true. Please. (laughs) No. But then they end the film with Xavier and Magneto, of course, because that's the actual relationship here. Which is also interesting, right? Because they have almost no screen time together in this movie, which is another weakness of the film um not just because that's what i want to be happening like that is a major central relationship of of these movies and they barely touched upon it to the extent that like 
when Magneto is having his guilty, oh, I'm doing a bad thing here, they have to, like, do a weird fan vid flashback thing to, like, first class to remind you that actually he cares because they haven't established that in the movie at all, which was also hilarious. Like, I was losing it, but I was like, there's a problem. Like, you haven't done this enough. And then a single tear rolls down Michael Fassbender's face, which the audience also burst out <laughs> laughing at in this hysterical way. There was a different tone to that laughter but it was pretty funny and then like the carnage stops and they just never show where he is i was like what is going on did you just cut more stuff like i don't they like raise a city destroys a concentration camp i don't (laughs) feel like that was a good decision to have in that film i was just so awestruck by it in like the literal sense of the word i can't even make a decision i was just yeah, like i was laughing at the pain. death of this kid i was like this is definitely a funny child death but once they get to the concentration camp i was like this is this is just why it's shocking but it's not funny and also kind of the fact that the cgi design is not very good sort of makes it worse <laughs> Well, I had been spoiled for that, which I was really disappointed about because I was like, I wish I had just experienced this with, I mean, like, oh my God, like I had sort of skimmed this review just to sort of get an impression. And then I saw this sentence. It was like, and then Magneto destroys Auschwitz. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, um, it kind of feels like something he'd want to be there as a reminder. I, well, but, but again, you can interpret it both ways, but either right, way, it's so, bad. Like, I don't. Like, it, it's bad, but it was also, like, daring in a way. And I also, don't think they thought it was daring. They definitely did like, not know what they were doing. Well, yeah, but the effect was nevertheless just sort of like, whoa. I think the review I was reading by um, David Ehrlich, whose reviews we review we linked to for the Civil War podcast, was just, well, this movie wasn't very good, but it had the craziest fucking thing I've ever seen in a superhero movie, so that's something. <laughs> and was, like, visually much more striking than anything. Like, I'm not trying to defend this, I just kind of was like, wow, that's nuts. It, like, it was better than the um, visuals towards the end. This had more sort of, like, destruction of cities than I've, like, ever seen. Yeah, in like, they must movie. have killed so many people, but it was the classic pinnacle of kind of trashing a whole city, but there was no visible blood or civilian casualties. So they destroyed, I think, basically all of Cairo. Yes, and also a bunch of other places around the world. Yeah, you see a montage of them, you know, killing the Golden Gate Bridge for the 50th time kind of thing. But it was so cartoonish that I almost just felt, you know, whatever. But much less visually striking than Auschwitz thing. I didn't even really know how to process it, except just shock, even though I knew that it was coming. (laughs) It's really a classic kind of X-Men franchise moment, because all of the films have this incredibly intense emotional core. And the political concept behind the X-Men thing is obviously great, even though they really did not focus on it enough in this film. But then also they're really trashy. For some reason, the visual effects just in general in the X-Men films don't look as good as a lot of these other franchises. I think maybe just Brian Singer has bad taste in visual effects artists. Like, I, I don't know. And then also, of course, it's like a ludicrous soap opera pantomime. Yes. They also, I think it's a combination of that and probably the fact that they actually have to do so much of it, right? Not that there isn't... a fuckload of visual effects in Civil War, but, like, if you think about, like, how much is required for, like, all of that stuff at the end, it's not subtle work that's required, right, is what I'm trying trying to say. Like, it's all very glaring and in-your-face, and, like, There's a lot of lightning bolts. Yeah. Having it be fully realistic wouldn't always work, either. Like, I don't know how exactly you would do it. 
But it's also his taste. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like the Zack Snyder thing, right? Like, it's clearly how he likes it to look. But to get back to the teenagers, which is what we were initially going to discuss, and then it got diverted by all of this madness, they cast a lot of them and made a big fuss about doing so. And then the only ones who really got significant screen time were Jean and Scott. And I think Jean was one of the best parts of the movie, for sure. So if you turn yeah, it I mean, she was, I think Jean was um, really the only character who got a coherent arc. Yes. Mystique and Cyclops kind of did. Yeah. Weirdly, Xavier and Magneto were kind of half and half. <laughs> I mean, they started Magneto from such a nonsensical place. Yeah, so like... there was no salvaging that. But the stuff with Jean I really liked, and I liked that they actually gave a female character interesting stuff to do. And I liked that at the end that she was the person who kind of did him in. Obviously, it's like a team effort, because that's the point of the X-Men. But she was clearly like the main driver of that. I was um, so glad because, and this isn't just a problem with her, this is a problem just generally with all of the superpower scenes in this movie, but there were like several scenes where she was not using her powers at all. And while you can definitely interpret that as her holding herself back because she can't trust herself, which is a really valid characterization choice, just in general, I find it really weird that Brian Singer can be working on this franchise for like 16 years. Simon Kinberg has worked on several of these films. Their whole job is just thinking about superheroes all day. And they can't do the most basic superhero fanfic playing with toys kind of thing, which is figuring out what everyone uses their powers for in a battle. Because if there's one thing the Avengers movies can do, it's figure out what everyone's powers are going to be using in a battle, even if it's just like an absolute nonsense scene. Whereas in this film, there's definitely stuff that's good. The Quicksilver thing was fun, even though it was completely pointless and gratuitous, but that's fine. There was some stuff in the Wolverine escape scene that was good. But like the battle at the end, they would go and focus on one character doing something and then they'd go around and focus on someone else. And there was just nothing happening between the others. And like Storm just wasn't doing anything. They just couldn't figure out what everyone was meant to be doing at all. I think that gets back to the problem with Apocalypse, right? Because he doesn't actually need them. I mean, I guess he sort of needs them to protect him in the place. But like, if he's so all-powerful... They're really there as window dressing plot wise. You kind of come up with a reason, but like it's sort of all because the movie needs more characters, which like it doesn't actually need more characters. There are more than enough characters, but because they have not established rules for him, there's no real logic to that whole battle and so they're just like singing a bunch of people in a, this place and they're all fighting and it's I was not quite surprised by how little Psylocke was in it because Olivia Munn has done like a lot of promotion for this film and I mean obviously she's in the film quite a lot but she definitely doesn't have a character she barely has any dialogue she doesn't actually have that many fight scenes and I think she did quite a lot of training for it so I can only assume they cut quite a lot of her role although obviously they cut more from like Jubilee because Jubilee was marketed as a character in this film and she's more like a cameo with a cool costume which is really yeah. unfortunate because that's a great character yes oh they also I mean, that they clearly did cut stuff, but in terms of the promotional stuff, like, they just have everyone promote everything yeah. at this point, right? Like, Gwendolyn Christie was is in Star Wars for, like, a very short well, period Gwendolyn Christie is a very memorable character in Star Wars. Yeah, but she's in it for, like, three scenes, maybe, like, five, and she was on the promotional circuit in, like, a massive way. Like, it's just part of how they promote these movies at this point. I think the difference is with this film, and also they kind of generally have a habit of this. Like in the last film, they had Anna Packin 
was credited like really high and filmed like 20 minutes for the film and then her entire role was cut kind of infamously which is why they ended up re-releasing a dvd extended edition called the Rogue cut they have a tendency to kind of write women and non-white characters into these roles in the corner where they can then feel able to edit them out in later versions and that's clearly what happened with this film as well it's just so amazing i was sort of watching it and i really did enjoy it as stupid as it is but it is just so incredible to me that they keep doing this on one level it's of course not surprising at all duh it's hollywood they do this this is this is how it works but they did exactly the same thing in first class right where they have a couple people of color they actually kill off one of them near the beginning not just kill off but they kill off a black guy whose superpower is that he's indestructible yeah, so the whole point is, is he's meant to adapt to every situation and he can't die. They kill him off and they keep the guy from the Taylor Swift video who is then in the next film and is in this film in like a really prominent role. And if there's two characters the X-Men Apocalypse did not need, it was Beast and Havoc. Yes. Even though Beast, like, I mean, they were both good. Like, Havoc especially kind of surprised me by having an interesting role. But you can remove both of them and also obviously Moira McTaggart and it is probably better. And then you yes. can keep the mall scene where Jubilee and Nightcrawler are hanging out drinking slushies. That's what I yes. want to see. <laughs> yeah. But, so they do that and then the other angel, who is not white, goes to the bad guys. And it was like the same fucking thing with Storm and this, right? And then like Olivia Munn too. They're on the bad guy team, and then all the white people are on the good guy team, and then they're all, like, most of the cast, almost all the cast is white anyway. And, like, and then in Days of Future Past, what they did is they had, like, a bunch of characters who they'd introduced, who they put just in the future scenes. So they had really cool costumes, they had cool superpowers, they had cool action sequences, and they had no characterization, backstory, or almost any dialogue. So they, they had, like, Fan Bing Bing in that movie. Yeah, she's like the most famous actress in the world, and she's basically standing, waving her arms around in front of a green screen. They have like a Halle Berry cameo. They introduce characters like Sunspot and stuff, and then obviously the actual story takes place around Xavier, Magneto, and Wolverine, and that's from a comic which is originally about a middle-aged woman traveling back in time into the body of her thirteen-year-old self, and they were like, "We'll just give Wolverine that role instead." Sure. <laughs> Sure. Which sadly is actually what audiences want to see. Because when Wolverine appeared in this movie, there was like raucous applause in the theater. Everyone was so excited. And I was just like, this is why. Like, this is why they keep doing it. This is why they keep bringing him back. Um, and to I'd sidebar. Have, I'd have a lot more acceptance for Wolverine if I didn't find his appearance so alarming. I get yes. really. I feel really worried about him whenever I see him. He looked fine in the first film. You know, there's a lot of human growth hormone been happening over the past decade. Just if you stopped doing that or even just made a film where he kept his shirt on, it would all be a lot less stressful to watch for me. <laughs> Which was part of what made him and Gene having their tender moment so fucking creepy. Okay, Morgan, is... tell me what you thought of this. Well, he is 27 years... I mean, I found it hilarious. Like, I couldn't take it seriously at all. But he is 27 years older than Sophie Turner. He is like roided out and she was like you know gazing at him and like has her hands on his face the young men behind us were not having any of this they were like he's twice as old as she is like no like no 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 like we were all just like what the fuck is this meanwhile like scott is looking at him like i don't think so buddy (laughs) 
I thought it was hilarious. Like, I wasn't offended, but I was just like, this is so weird. I loved it for exactly the same reason you thought it was weird. I was like, this really highlights how gross and shitty their relationship is. Okay, so I, in general, hate all love triangles. My one exception is the one in X-Men. Because I love Cyclops. I love Jean Grey. I love Wolverine. I think all of their interactions are trash and I enjoy watching all of it. (laughs) So after my friends and I watched this film, we were kind of talking about how bad the dialogue was. And... um, One of the friends I watched it with is a playwright and screenwriter, and she was basically like, every single thing that anyone says in this film is just a really obvious declarative statement, and there is no subtlety whatsoever. And the only thing I can pick up in the entire film that is intentional subtext is the moment where Jean Grey starts to kind of seem attracted to Cyclops. And it's when he expresses power. Because before that, she's obviously just like, he's a jackass. As soon as he explodes something with his eye beams, she kind of looks at him and is like, Oh ho! Yes! <laughs> He's a powerful freak too. And I was like, you have managed to transmit in this one look more than the entire original trilogy explained why their relationship worked. <laughs> because while yes. I was really into both Cyclops and Jean Grey in the original trilogy, their relationship didn't, it didn't yeah. really make sense. Um, and that, like, just that one thing, that one interaction between them was so good. I had the exact same reaction. I was actually also laughing about that because you could sort of totally tell it was like this teen girl sort of thing of being like, yeah, get it. Great. That was like creepy, like overgrown. Oh like, God, yeah, it was so creepy. Middle the age, Jackman. When it was actually on screen, I didn't even consider the link with the previous thing. And then like about two minutes later, I was like, oh. Because <laughs> I'm like that dense. And then I was like, oh, that makes it much better. That's so creepy and horrible. I love it. Very bad indeed. And he's got his GoPro camera drilled into his skull the whole time. Just so unnecessary. He's like pulling the like things out of his chest in the in a very erotic fashion. It's <laughs> just like oh. So can't wait to see where that goes next time. He's done soon. I know he keeps saying he's done and then quitting, but like he actually is going to be done soon. He can't keep doing that to his body. So then what are they gonna do? Like they have to have Wolverine. No, they don't. They can just like, not have fucking Wolverine. Uh, they are going to have to have Wolverine. Like, they rely on that character for the franchise. <laughs> they can have girl Wolverine. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's what they're going to do. Cast a woman. I mean, what they actually can do is they can have old man Wolverine and they can just let him age naturally. Yes. Because the, th- the thing that I'd really like to see, which is definitely 100% not going to happen, is that there was a recent run of X-Men comics where Wolverine basically has to take over as headmaster of the school. And it's like a teen kind of comedy drama. So almost all the characters are teenagers with silly powers. And then Wolverine is like attempting to be an authority figure. And it's just hysterical. Like it's brilliant. And like that is what they should be doing with the next X-Men spinoffs. Like they should be focusing on the teenagery stuff. But, you know. But yeah, I mean, back to the white people thing. It's a massive problem for them. Like they need to stop. And really widely remarked upon. It's something that gets brought up regularly in very mainstream reviews. Yes, because the whole point of X-Men is that it's this allegory for discrimination, right? And sometimes quite effective, sometimes not so much. And one of the problems in this movie, which we've sort of been talking about, um, is that they sort of gloss over a lot of the context for that, right? So in some of the other movies, they talk more about the sort of like mutant rights situation or what's going on with the political scene. And in this one, it seems like they maybe 
had some of that and then perhaps cut it out or like it's all very vague like um mystique is this revered figure but it's pretty unclear and part of that i think actually is back to the fact that magneto is such a passive character right like he and charles are at odds and that's where that kind of comes from but that's not a dynamic in this film so if that's not there then that kind you kind of lose something on the political side but if your whole if the whole kind of point is that it's this political allegory and you have a bunch of white people and also they're all straight they're straight and also in a really dumb way where you've you've managed to create a situation where two straight men have an incredibly intense very clearly homoerotic relationship and that like also in turn weakens the role of the female characters because they keep trying to inject female characters between them and that is a disservice to the female characters which is exactly what happened with mystique and i mean obviously more mctaggart who's just a non-entity and with mystique in this film they like make hank be like all over her again right there's that one shot where he like is leaning over her body when she's unconscious it's like (sighs) but like that's totally unnecessary for the plot or any other reason like no one cares about that and then they like give magneto a wife and then there's all the stuff with moira no one needs this no one cares this is not why people go to see x-men films right it's a soap opera where everyone is a blue werewolf right (laughs) it's such a clear difference between that and like Gene and Cyclops, right? Which is actually a relationship that is, like, cute. They're cute teens who like each other. That's fine. I endorse that. As opposed to all these others, like, shoehorned-in things that don't make any sense and are completely unnecessary. And it's like, you could have given some more screen time to Jubilee, or indeed any screen time. (laughs) It's just really frustrating and stupid and... At this point, with all of the discourse going on in the media about this problem, of course they're not going to have Magneto and Professor X make out, but the race thing is such an easy fix, right? Just hire some fucking people of color, and the ones you do hire, let them actually be on the screen in your movie. It's not that difficult. And you have a million characters. And also, you have like 15 teenagers, just have some of them not be straight. They're teenagers. All the people watching these movies are millennials. Millennials, broadly, as a category, are not particularly homophobic. We watch Glee, you know? (laughs) This is Glee with lasers. Yes. And yet, the sort of, like, entrenched refusal to do any of this, it's really depressing. And also, also, just as a postscript, that was not an endorsement of Glee. Yeah, God, no. Um, it's, It's depressing, but also from a business standpoint, really foolish, on the sort of like race front, we've seen that more diverse films tend to do better at the box office, although no one believes that that's true. But also, like, if they just like made one of the fucking teenagers gay, they would get such a publicity like blitz on that, right? Because they would be the first movie to fucking do it, or like you know of this obviously genre. Yeah, I mean, obviously Deadpool is yeah pansexual. But the way they execute that, both in the comics and in the movie, is that he comes across as a quirky straight man who makes jokes that homophobic people can interpret as a joke. Even though the writers are like, he is definitely attracted to people of all genders. They do it in a rather, I would say, cowardly way. Yeah. 
And so, again, like, it's not surprising to me. I understand why this is all happening, but it would be such an easy problem for them to solve in this franchise in particular that it's particularly aggravating. Coming out of this film, my main takeaway about the franchise as a whole is that they really just need to entirely shake up the creative team. Because Brian Singer has been masterminding this franchise since the year 2000. Well, since before, since the late 90s. Obviously, he didn't make First Class. That was Matthew Vaughn and uh, Jane Goldman. But, you know, these films are not going to get any better or more interesting until they find new people. And that's clearly not happening. They need people who can write women. They need people who can write teenagers. They need people who do not have unexamined race issues. Yeah. And First Class has major problems in those two areas, as we were discussing. But when they hired uh, Matthew Vaughn and Jane Goldman, there was a major sort of boost of energy into the franchise. Obviously, like, everyone hated X-Men 3 a lot. They Which was written they had... by the writer of this movie. Simon Kinberg wrote right. X-Men 3 and wrote Apocalypse. And so they clearly were like, okay, we need to do something. They got those people. That movie was really well received, despite the problems that it has. But it had a lot of energy yeah, it's really fun, and it's really, like, emotionally... It's most, very emotionally compelling. Yes, the most emotionally compelling of these three movies by far. So, not that I think they should give it back to them at all, but, like, that strategy of being like, okay, we need to bring some new people in to try to, you know, shake this up a little bit, worked in a way. So, maybe do that again. That would be my recommendation. Obviously, it would be great if they gave it to someone who was not a white man, but... We know that won't ever happen. I mean, like, broadly, just, it's just a so different weird. white man, maybe. Like, should not Brian Singer. Please make him. Yeah, get, make him be somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. But also, I think it's so obvious across literally all of these franchises now that they just all need to hire young women. Obviously, if it's like a woman <laughs> who's starting out and hasn't written a film before, have them be the co-writer, don't risk a whole movie on someone who's not written a film before. But like the audience who is engaging most with most of these franchises is young women. And also the people who are starting to read comics, especially X-Men comics, the audience for X-Men has always been diverse. And if you're going to have like a new mutant, Mutants movie, if they hire someone who's from this you know, I was a teenager in the mid-90s comic book fan, guys. You're missing a trick, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also with the teenagers thing, like, it's not that only young people can write teenagers. Like, that's not true. But it doesn't totally make sense to continue having all of these middle-aged men do this job. Like, maybe get in some younger people for that. Especially if you want it to be, like, current in any way. I mean, I know they. this is in the 80s, so... And the next one's going to be in the 90s, so I guess... In the 90s, and apparently in space. Really? I was not aware of that. Oh, girl. We are... We are... Looking forward to it. In the 90s and in space, and we'll see who actually winds up being in that movie, because Jennifer Lawrence recently was just like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to do it. Run for the hills. Well, and she said, basically, that, like, I guess she and Fassbender and McAvoy were all contracted for three. And it's not like this is the best job they've ever had, right? And they all, like, the three of them are friends, and they all basically got together and were like, are you going to do another one? Are you going to do another one? They're like, I guess I'll do one if you all do it. And, like, they're basically, like, making a small union. (laughs) Jennifer Lawrence is definitely getting the short end of the stick here, because James McAvoy 
clearly enjoys himself in this franchise. Michael Fassbender is a workaholic and also his role was like, I, I'm pretty sure it was quite minimal in this film. Like he probably didn't spend that much time filming. Whereas yeah. Jennifer Lawrence is just completely wasting time. She should be doing something that is not the X-Men franchise. Right. But if they want any of them to do the next one, they're going to have to pay all three of them a fuckload of money. So they clearly can't let all three of them go, which means that they're going to have to pony up. And Jennifer Lawrence recently managed to negotiate a, a film with Sony, I think, for $20 million. So their budget is going to be high. But uh, yeah, I hope that they shake it up a little bit in the future. Because despite how much I did enjoy this movie, which we mostly spent this hour criticizing, <laughs> I did really like it a lot, but like they have to do something, because this can't go on in perpetuity. Uh, I think that's all we have. Do you have any further thoughts? Yeah, I mean, my, my only further thoughts is that I was very happy about all the 80s fashion in this movie from the oh, still yes. photos and the trailers as well i was i was a bit underwhelmed i didn't think much of the clothes but when i watched the film itself i was like yeah i'm into all of this i'm into Moira mctaggart's horrible suits i'm very <laughs> into charles xavier's lavender sweater which is just yes. going down in my list of favorite movie moments of 2016. um i like that they had sophie turner in like something that made her have linebacker shoulders <laughs> and I loved Jubilee for the 10 seconds she was on screen. She had, like, really great hair, cool makeup, cool jewelry, cool yellow jacket. I realize that's not a good reason to like a character, but I would have liked it if she was there more, because her <laughs> outfit clearly showed that she was cool. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's us for this week. And I think next week we are, for once, we are not talking about franchise film, which we are going to make an effort to do less in future because i know that we do talk about superheroes a lot but next week we are going to be talking about the film love and friendship which is adapted from jane austen's unpublished novel lady susan yes which uh i have seen already i believe it went wide in the united states this week so you should be able to have a chance to see it before next week if you are interested i have seen it it is fantastic i highly recommend it it was directed by Whit stillman um, yeah, we'll be talking about that next weekend. I am soon going to be doing a master's degree in 19th century English literature, so I have a lot to say about this film. I mean, yeah, we're going to be Austin. talking broadly about a lot of Jane Austen stuff, and um, Morgan will be informed. I will not. <laughs> yes, so we're looking forward to that. Thank you for listening. Um, as always, if you enjoyed this, uh, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. That's how we find new listeners. And you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, at Twitter at overinvestedpod, and at Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>